1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to the end of the chapter. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Pray with me. Lord, we now turn to this most somber and serious text. Father, if anyone in this room is like me, I, I know what it, we know what it feels like to approach a text of Scripture with sort of a, a passive, sort of a, a careless type of attitude, Lord, and that temptation is in all of us this morning. So, Lord, I just want to pray that you would, by your Spirit, would you still our hearts right now? Would you cause the weight of this text to sit on us as we study it? Would you cause the weight of your glory to fall on us as we behold you in your word today? We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and, uh, uh, I always forget his name, Tenzing Norgay, were the first climbers to reach the 29,000-foot peak of Mount Everest. Since then, many climbers have followed in suit. About 2,700 uh, climbers have reached the peak of Mount Everest uh, by the year 2006. So a lot of people got the idea from them and decided we were going to try that too, and they accomplished the goal. But it seems that in the blind goal of some to reach the top, the traditional code of 
mountaineering has all but been abandoned. One avid climber of Mount Everest and other mountains uh, says that passing people on the mountain who are dying to get to the top is not uncommon. David Sharp was one such casualty in 2006. The 34-year-old engineer from Cleveland managed to reach the summit on his own, but on the descent back down, he ran out of oxygen. And so Mr. Sharp collapsed, and he rested underneath the cleft and overhang. Eventually, his oxygen ran out, and he was freezing. And as Sharp lay there, some 40-something climbers passed by him, too eager to achieve their own goals, to take a chance on offering their oxygen to someone else. Sharp froze to death. This not-my-problem type of attitude has produced disgust in many climbers, including Edmund Hillary, who said, on my expedition, there was no way you would leave a man under a rock to die. Now, the welfare of others is secondary. Getting to the top is priority. Churches, we have seen this not-my-problem attitude has characterized the church in Corinth. Last week, we were perhaps surprised to hear that Paul commended the church for something good that they were doing, something they were doing well. They were maintaining their God-given distinctions between male and female at worship in the gathered church. And by the way, worship as a gathered people is the theme that's going to take us through to the end of chapter 14. So we're really entering a section of this letter where we're talking about worship. We're talking about worship of God, the vertical. We're talking about how our worship of God affects our relationships with one another in the horizontal. So this is all about worship, and it's about relationship. But in today's passage, we quickly return to Paul's rebuke, to Paul's warning, because he, he sees them slipping in another way that relates with their conduct and worship together. And in particular, Paul rebukes the effort of some to get to the top to the neglect of their less fortunate brothers and sisters. But in the process, they are negating, they are contradicting genuine worship, and they're mocking God. Now, friends, in your Bibles, you probably see a, a, a heading over this section that reads, the Lord's Supper. And indeed, this, this is about the Lord's Supper. Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper. But our text, our text is really about the disconnect between the vertical dimension of this church's worship, their right view of God, and the horizontal dimension of their worship, how their view of God affects their relationship with one another. There's a disconnect. And so Paul will talk about the Lord's Supper, and we're going to receive, as you can see by the tables, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper today. But friends, before we come to the table, this passage is about seeing how what Jesus did in the past ought to profoundly affect the way that we treat one another in the present. Whether we are male or female, whether we are rich or poor, 
whether we are of high class or low class or of one ethnicity or another. Friends, you cannot separate worship and community. Those two things go together. They must go together because we worship in the context of a gathered people where Jesus is present in this people. So friends, just as in previous weeks, this passage is a warning. And it's a warning for those who believe the message of the cross, the fact of the cross. And that is that Jesus died for sinners while being yet unwilling to embrace the way of the cross in our relationships with each other. Friends, being a follower of Jesus is about denying ourselves in the same way that he denied himself for our sake. No, we do not. We cannot replicate his work for us. That has been done once for all. I'm not standing here saying we were repeating something that Jesus did. No, I'm saying we follow after him because his work for us demands and enables life change that ought to be seen, friends, in our fellowship together. That's what Paul's after in this chapter. If you're taking notes this morning, the title is Before We Come to the Table. Before we come to the table. The Corinthians and we need to hear what Paul wants us to know before we rise at the end and come receive the Lord's Supper. I'm going to give you three words. They represent three headings. Paul gives first a reprimand. Second, a he wants them to remember. Third, he wants them to repent. Reprimand, remember, repent. Then we'll receive the, first, the Lord's Supper. First, reprimand. This is verses 17 to 22 in your Bibles. Now, friends, we all know what it's like to be reprimanded, okay? God's word will do that to us today. We all, kids, you know what it's like to be reprimanded. When you do something wrong at home, your parents, they come to you, they correct you, they show you, hey, what you did was wrong. And the reason they do that is not because they don't like you. It's not because they want to take your fun away. It's because they see you walking down a path that's dangerous, that if you continue walking down that path through life, your life will end with the judgment of God. That's why our parents reprimand us. And that's why God's word also reprimands us. So our lives do not end in God's judgment. Here in this text, Paul is saying, when you come together, five times he says this phrase, five times he says, when you come together, you are doing something here that I cannot commend you for. In fact, he says in verse 1, what you're doing is causing more harm than good. And once again, this situation pertains to eating and drinking. Have you noticed how much eating and drinking Paul has talked about in this letter so far? It's funny, isn't it, friends? Eating and drinking, some of the greatest problems that we face revolve around eating and drinking. Sometimes the most angry we get is pertaining to food. When we're being delayed from eating, we get angry because our bellies are hungry and we want our kids to hurry up and get to the table. I'll say that happened to me last night. I have something to ask my kids forgiveness for. Food has an effect on our physical bodies, but it also draws out deeper issues that are going on in our spirit. 
And this is what Paul is addressing here. What are those issues? Well, again, as we saw in chapter 1, Paul showed us that there are divisions happening among them. He says that in verse 18. In verse 19, he uses this term factions or schisms. This seems like the norm in this church, backbiting and arguing and debating and, and, and factions, cliques forming all around. But here, Paul is speaking about a specific cultural situation that's going on in the church. So again, we need to understand just a little bit about the first century church, but also Roman dining conventions, typical Roman dining conventions. So in the days of the early church, uh, it's possible that the, ter- the church would gather each week in a large assembly hall, but more likely, uh, the-, the church gathered in the larger home of one of its more wealthy members. From what scholars tell me, it's very likely that as a church, they would gather on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, in the afternoon or in the evening sometime. And part of this gathering consisted of sharing a meal together. They called this the common meal. Then there would be teaching, there would be singing, there would be prayer, and there would be the receiving of the sacraments, namely the Lord's Supper. The common meal was bookended by the Lord's Supper, in fact. So what they would do is is they would begin by taking bread and they would give thanks to the Lord. They'd break the bread and then they would all share a meal together. And at the end of the meal, they would take the cup of blessing. Now, in larger homes, excavations reveal, there would have been different areas of the house where this meeting took place. The dining area was in this formal section of the house, the largest section of the house, where there was a table in the middle of the dining area and and couches that kind of were sprawled out around the dining table. Folks would eat by reclining at, at at a couch at the table. This area was called the triclinium in the Roman household. Tri meaning three. Clinium is refers to a Greek word that refers to couch. And they would gather in this meal Uh, They would gather in this room, but this would be the place where the wealthy people would come to gather culturally. Formal meals, you have to understand, were a custom of the wealthy. So culturally, only those of the upper classes would be permitted to come in and recline and eat in the triclinium. What about the rest of them? What about the poor among them? Well, those of the lesser classes, these would have been workmen and slaves and and freedmen, they would remain out in the courtyard in a place called the atrium. So there was an obvious social barrier between the high class and the low class. So here's what would happen. The wealthy folks would arrive. They would bring a basket with them of food that they would share with the rest of the household, with the rest of the church. They would sit down, they would distribute the meal, and they would begin to eat the meal. But instead of considering those who were out in the atrium, the upper class uh, customs that they were so accustomed to had led them, Paul says in verse 21, to go ahead and to eat their own food. Now that word go ahead means to devour. They would devour their food, they would guzzle their wine, but meanwhile, out in the overflow room, the folks out there might not get anything, and they would go hungry. Now, imagine for a second if you were a poor person in the first century. You don't eat formal meals at home. You eat food out somewhere if you can get some food in the market. You cook outside. You don't eat inside. 
You've just had a long 10, 12-hour day of labor. You're going to the gathered church. You're going to spend time with the church. And you're starving. And you're hoping that being in the church, I could at least get a square meal today. I can at least put some hot food in my belly. Not so in Corinth. The poor were arriving at the house and they were going hungry. Their bellies were empty. While the rich people inside, the high class, they're full and they're drunk. So apparently, the point here is, once again, the church in Corinth allowed cultural norms to control their attitudes toward their fellow brothers and sisters of lower class or lower economic status. And even though Paul has already said in chapter 10, now listen, we who are of many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The actions of the well-to-dos among them were making some in the church feel like second-class citizens. And Paul says, you're pouring contempt on them. So Paul says, listen, this isn't the Lord's Supper you're eating. You think this is the Lord's Supper that you're eating? This is a shame feast. You're putting to shame those who should be right next to you because in the sight of God, they are of equal status. Coming together for worship is for the purpose of communion with God and with each other, not to gorge yourselves, not to get drunk. That's what you got homes for, isn't it, Paul says? Your worship, he says, is tainted. It's a mockery, not only of the socially inferior among you, but of God himself. My dear ones, as I reflected on this passage, and I'm just going to say, this is a challenging passage to study. As I reflected on this passage, the question came to mind, how does God want to be worshipped anyway? How does God want to be worshipped? What was going on in those houses? When we come together here on a Sunday, what ought we to be doing? Are we doing things that are pleasing to God? Is what we do the way that we should be using our time on a Sunday? What does the Bible say? So I began doing a mental survey. And the scripture says, okay, when we gather, we're to sing. Ephesians 5.19, you come together, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another and to the Lord. There ought to be prayer. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 14 later. Prayer was a part of the liturgy. It was a part of, part of the service. Also, Acts chapter 2, they prayed regularly. There's to be preaching and teaching. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul was in Troas, on the first day of the week, they gathered and the scripture was taught. There's also the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. Again, the scriptures are, are, are the, the Lord's Supper is being observed. That happened in Troas again. The scriptures are to be read. 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture and teaching. Each has a spiritual gift for the edification of the body. We're going to look at that in 1 Corinthians 12-14. A collection was taken. Paul said to the Corinthians on the first day of the week, when you gather, take up a collection to help others in need. Now, I did a mental survey, and I think, okay, I think we can check most of those boxes but dear ones, though those elements are vital to our worship, guess what? They aren't the most important part of our worship. 
checking off boxes is not what God is interested in. The most important part of our worship is not merely singing. It's not merely listening attentively to the word. It's not giving our amens and our claps and saying praise God. Because friends, when we sit in judgment toward a fellow brother and sister for any reason or ignore someone because we don't like something they did or withhold forgiveness from someone or hold grudges towards someone because of something they did, but then come in here and act like all is well, guys, we trample the very gospel we claim to have believed. The gospel believed and applied empowers us to forgive and to live in harmony with one another because Christ forgave us. But friends, if I withhold forgiveness, here's what I'm saying to you. This is what Vody Bauckham said. I had to quote him because it's so well said. I know Christ died for that sin against me, and that's enough for the Father, but it isn't enough for me. I need you to experience the discomfort of my anger and my ire towards you in addition to Christ's death on the cross. His death satisfied the Father's wrath, but not mine. Friends, as Bodhi Bauckham says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. Friends, Jesus did not humble himself to become a man and live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we deserve to die for our sin, to raise up a body of believers who claim to love him but then withhold love from one another. He didn't die for that kind of church. God is not interested in our worship and our offering and our meetings if we withhold love from each other. Let me calm down here. This is tough to preach because because Grace City Church is a church that's characterized by love. Don't don't mistake. I'm trying to carry forward the, the tenor of the passage here. But guys, listen, woe to us. Woe to us if we rebuff the conviction of the Holy Spirit confronting those refined sins in our hearts of self-righteousness and judgment. Dear ones, there are, if, if, there, if there are brothers and sisters in our lives that we cast aside unwittingly, we despise them. We're climbed to the top of the mount of self-righteousness so that we can look down on others beneath us. We despise the church of God when we harbor judgmentalism against those who don't think like we do or act like we do or do the things that we never would do. We look down. Paul meant to rebuke this church, but the Spirit may want to do the same in us here today. So friends, let's receive this reprimand for all that it's worth before we come to the table. The next step before we come to the table is to remember verse 23, number two. Remember verse 23 to 26. These verses are typically read within the context of a communion, Lord's Supper service, and rightly so. But friends, it's really easy to pull them out of the immediate context and in so doing, fail to see what they're intended to convey. 
So what's Paul doing? Well, he's, he's bringing up the Lord's Supper as an illustration to contrast this church's attitude toward the less well-to-dos with Jesus' attitude toward the sinner who happens to be all of them. None of them are well-to-dos. They're all bad-to-dos, and so are we. This is a contrast. This isn't a new section. This isn't a new subject. Paul wants these believers to see how the Lord's Supper, when rightly celebrated, has a powerful impact on our mutual fellowship as the gathered church. So he says, this is what I received from the Lord and what I gave to you when we were, back when we were together. Paul was in Corinth for a year and a half. These instructions, Paul says, he received directly from the Lord Jesus. This is the only place in any of Paul's letters where he directly refers to the narrative in the Gospels, which were not yet recorded down at this time, but this is a direct reference to the Gospels. So if we want to know, friends, how we are to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, this is it. And friends, as an aside, we would, we would keep ourselves out of so much trouble in worship if we just did what God tells us to do. Now, as we study this, we have to consider the the biblical theological story out of which the Lord's Supper emerged. The table finds its origins on the tables of the Israelites on the night that they ate the first Passover meal when they were still slaves in Egypt. Now, I'm not going to turn there. I commend Exodus chapter 12 to you. You can go back and read what happened on that Passover meal. But God commanded the Jews to eat the Passover meal before he delivered them from Egyptian bondage and to repeat that every single year. Now, for what reason? Why did God ask them to command them to repeat it every single year? To remember this was meant to be a vivid memory. Let me, let, me, let me take this a little further. A reenactment of what God did to deliver them and to redeem them. So when the Passover Seder is celebrated today by Jewish folks, that word Seder just means order. Everything is very ordered and ritualistic. They take the unleavened bread and they say, this bread of affliction, that your, this is the bread of affliction that your forefathers ate, and they eat it. And when they see the wine, they, they, it calls to mind the blood of the lamb that was placed on the, on the doorpost and the lintel of the house. And the taste of the bitter herbs reminded them of their ancestors' embittered lives in slavery. The Passover Seder is a tangible memorial, a reliving of the Jewish deliverance from slavery, placing them there at the event, even though it may have taken place thousands of years before they received that. This is essentially what Paul is saying about the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted on the night that he was betrayed. Except instead of the bread of affliction being eaten like the Israelites of old, Jesus took the bread he gave thanks. That word in the Greek is eucharistesos. It's where we get the word eucharist from. He gave thanks, and he took it, and he declared, this is my body, which is for you. Jesus ate the bread of affliction when his body was torn for our rebellion against God. And after the supper, rather than take the cup of blessing in his hands, Jesus took the cup of cursing. His blood, he says, is the new covenant 
that was foretold by Jeremiah. It is his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats that forever cleanses those who receive him by faith. Friends, in the Old Testament, covenants could only be ratified by blood. So Jesus shed his blood for his people. Jesus' shed blood is God's way of saying, never again will you be held liable for your sins because Jesus, not bull or goat, is the perfect once for all sacrifice for sin. You see, dear one, when he says, do this in remembrance of me, he was saying that the sacrifice has been offered. It is never to be repeated again. It's a once-for-all sacrifice. And as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, the cup and the bread is meant to be a visible sermon to the believer in Jesus who takes it. And friends, when we do, we bear witness to the reality that Christ died for me. This was for me What we're going to do today is not a repetition of Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus isn't coming to be sacrificed again. No, this is a reenactment for the benefit of everyone present. This places us, friends, at the foot of the cross. It involves us in the sacrifice. And every time we taste the bread and drink the cup, it shows what my sin and your sin demanded. It's a reenactment. Loved ones, do you see what Paul is saying then? This meal is about the self-giving of the Savior for you and for me. That's why we receive the Lord's Supper here on certain Sundays. We do it because it's really easy to forget what God did in his son to make us a people for himself in the first place. Listen, the Lord's Supper lassos us spiritually back to where Jesus gave his life for sinners and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So that when we get back in our cars and we go head home, that same forgiving attitude would be in all of us. Of course, this wasn't happening in Corinth, but it can happen here. If we will receive the Holy Spirit's rebuke, his reprimand, and see this visible sermon as an opportunity to remember that Jesus was crushed for me. Third and last Before we come to the table, the word is repent. Repent, verses 27 to 34. I just feel very compelled in this moment to just slow down a second and to be careful. Not many of you should become teachers for you will receive a stricter judgment. This section has been the source of much confusion and condemnation for many. Usually because it's lifted out of its immediate setting. It need not be 
though it is indeed meant to be a warning to the guilty in the sense that Paul uses it here in verse 27. I think of a, lot, a lot of confusion comes from this verse, verse 27. Look at it with me for a second. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. That's, that's a, that is a powerful, difficult statement. But the reality is, is that there were some in the church who were partaking of the body and the blood in an unworthy manner. They were not discerning the body. Now that word discerning has a wide range of meaning in the New Testament. It can mean to differentiate. It can mean to estimate or to judge correctly. It can mean to recognize. It's a diverse word. Then there's this word body. Is this a reference to Christ's body as it's used here in verse 27? In this case, the failure to discern the body of Christ would refer to Christ's body, his shed sacrifice, his blood that was shed for our sins, a sacrifice that he made. It would be a failure to, to come to the table and recognize my sin. That would be undiscerning of the body, wouldn't it? If I came to the table with unconfessed sin and just received the Lord's Supper like it's no big deal, like this just doesn't matter, is it a reference to Christ's body? Or does it refer to the church as the body of Christ, like it's used in chapter 10, verse 17? Listen to this. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So if that's the case, failure to discern the body would refer to the body at the table. Meaning, mistreating our fellow members of the body so as to insult Christ when we come to the table because Christ is spiritually present in the gathered church. Is that what Paul means? Well, scholars have chosen both. They've gone both directions, but I don't know. I don't think we need to look any further than the context to understand the way it's used in verse 27 certainly has the first meaning in mind, and failing to discern the body would be to mock the sacrifice of Jesus. But the context of this section has the fellow members of the body in mind. So maybe it's a combination of both meanings together. Recognizing when the supper is reenacted at the table, the elements depict the real sacrifice of Jesus for the partaking. So we should be sober when we receive this. At the same time, Christ's sacrificial love for us in his death is a warning and a reminder of the love that we ought to have for one another at the table. The body is the body of Jesus and the spiritual body on the earth. So if this is the case, to eat the bread and to drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is to approach the table in a way that violates its intended purpose as a visible sermon of the death of Christ. The Lord's Supper shows that Jesus gave his life to make unworthy people recipients of the grace of God. But friends, listen, we cannot partake worthily if we fail to see how unworthy we really are. And one of the most telling proofs of our own self-worthiness is our unwillingness to love, our unwillingness to forgive, 
our unwillingness to overlook offenses. You see, friends, God will not stand by having his body on the earth, the church, disfigured by anyone. Again, to refer to Vody Balcom, he's a preacher I enjoy listening to. He preached a sermon on this text, and he likened the Lord's table to the American embassy. And he says that you can visit any country with an American embassy, and the moment that you walk into the gates of that embassy where the American flag is flying, you are on U.S. soil, even though physically, spatially, you're in some other nation. And an attack on that embassy is an attack against the whole of the United States of America. Likewise, the Lord's Supper is the raised flag of the kingdom of God on the earth. It's a tiny little representation of a massive reality. And when anyone, anyone, you, me, anyone, infringe on this territory, it is an attack against that kingdom, and most of all, an attack against the sovereign king of all, of that kingdom. So friends, When we abuse the Lord's Supper, someone says, how do I abuse the Lord's Supper? We abuse the Lord's Supper when we partake of it as a non-believer. We've not trusted in Christ for his salvation. We've not trusted in Jesus alone to save us. We partake of the Lord's Supper then. We're abusing the body because this hadn't happened to us in reality. Jesus' blood was not shed for us. We can do it that way. We can abuse the Lord's Supper by continuing in unrepentant sin and never ever turning away from it. I'm not talking about those who struggle with sin. I'm talking about those who live in blatant sin that don't care and then coming up to this table and receiving the Lord's Supper. That's how we abuse the Lord's Supper. That's how we abuse the body. But Paul seems to add a third in this chapter. looking down on a brother or sister. And all that is those entail, that entails, harboring unforgiveness, stank eye towards someone that you don't like, withholding love when all love ought to be given, listening when speaking is happening but you don't care what they have to say because you're mad at them. The phone call or the text message asking, please forgive me, and you say No. Friends, don't come up to that table. God does not take that abuse lightly. And this is why Paul says in verse 30, because you haven't examined yourselves before approaching, listen, you're being disciplined by the Lord. That's why some of y'all are weak. That's why some of y'all are sick. That's why some among you have died. Friends, there are physical ramifications for our spiritual failures. We tend to blame illness on everything under the sun, things like stress and poor sleep habits and bad diet. Have we ever considered that we're sick because we're living in unrepentant sin? Has it ever crossed our mind? Call for the elders of the church, pray over me. Okay, we'll pray over you so that the prayer of faith will save the sick, and if you have sins against God, they may be what? Forgiven. 
The spiritual and the physical cannot be separated. There are ramifications in the physical for our spiritual failures. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying every sniffle, every single cough is connected to some unrepentant sin and we ought to live in fear. No, this is just a wake-up call for us to take sin seriously. Grace City Church, will we take sin seriously? Will we take our personal sin seriously? Will we see that our sin is a slap in the face of an immeasurably holy God? that could snuff our breath out in a split second. Do we see our sin like that? So what's Paul say is the right way to approach the table? How can any of us approach the table? That's the question. How can a single one of us human beings approach this table? I mean, honestly. We are so unworthy. We are so ridden through with sin. How can I approach this table today? How is a single one of us going to stand up from our seats and come and receive from this table today? Paul tells us what to do. He says, examine yourself and wait for one another. Examine yourself is understood well enough. It means to put yourself under a microscope. It means to scrutinize your heart. Is there a flippant attitude in my heart as I approach this table? Are there obvious sins that I have failed to repent of or some not so obvious sins that I haven't repented of because I haven't examined myself under a microscope and I can't see them? But this phrase, wait for one another, is a little harder. Verse 32 to wait, we kind of think of wait as it implies a time stamp. Like, hey, I'm going to the store. Wait for me to get there. Don't leave. That's not exactly what Paul's saying here. This word wait in the Greek is far richer. This word wait means to welcome, to receive, to share. The same word is used in Romans 15.7. It's kind of our, our theme verse for this church. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Friends, isn't Paul saying that when you come together, everything you do should be a testimony to the self-sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf? Isn't that it? Don't, don't use corporate worship as an opportunity to stuff your face to the neglect of your brothers and sisters. You can do that at home, he says. And beloved, stuffing our face may be just the quietest, quietest, subtlest attitude of superiority over another brother or sister for whom Jesus died. Stuffing our face may mean all smiles in conversation on Sunday when inside there is this lingering bitterness that's in our hearts over a word that was spoken to us two or three years ago or a word that wasn't spoken to us when we believed it should have been. Stuffing our face can mean, I'm not saying it is every time, but it can mean getting up from this place and seeing a brother or sister in need and then rushing out because we have lunch plans. That can be stuffing our face. And if this, the, if this is the case, it isn't worship that we come here on Sundays to do. It's just not. Why? Because you can't fool the king. You can't fool the king who sees everything. Coming together 
is one for the purpose of praising God and proclaiming to each other that the power of sin has been broken through the shed blood of Jesus and two, welcoming, receiving, sharing with those with whom you will be happy in Christ forever. Friends, only then do we worship in spirit and truth. Only then do we have church. Now, in just a few minutes, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper, as I've said many times. But, beloved, the effect of this text is meant to help us to consider the seriousness of the Lord's table before we come to the table. The table is a visible sermon. It's a, it's a reenactment of the self-giving of Jesus for us. When we taste that bread and we take that cup, what's happening is we're using our senses. We're touching. We're seeing. We're tasting. Feeling. We're taking it in to ourselves. All of our senses are involved. Why? God wants us to go back there. He wants to bring us back there to the foot of the cross where Jesus died. That's what's meant to happen when we stand at these tables. We're meant to see the love that was poured out in the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. But let me just say something. This is not a private affair. We have to ask, am I partaking unworthily? Because there's a disconnect between the vertical worship of my heart and the horizontal relationships with my brothers and sisters. If there is a disconnect in our hearts for that reason, or we're living in sin, or we've never looked to Christ for salvation, and we have sort of this, this is not my problem type of attitude. We don't need to come up. It's for our, friends, it's for our good not to partake of the table in that case. You don't want to drink, eat and drink judgment on yourself. Use this time instead as an opportunity to reflect, to confess, to repent, to get ready to go visit or to make that phone call with someone. I haven't answered the question, who's eligible? Who's eligible partake, to partake, partake? It's a simple answer. You're eligible to partake of this table today. If you've looked away from your own works and have trusted in Jesus, to forgive you of your sins and you know you're not worthy. Your unworthiness makes you eligible to receive this supper. This table is not for the sinless. It's for those who look away from themselves to that perfect sacrifice who based their hope of acceptance on God, uh, with God on Christ and his perfect obedience. Guys, let me let you on a little secret. That's repentance. Repentance isn't muttering words, God, please forgive me for my sin. That's the manifestation of a heart posture that has looked away from oneself and to Christ. 
That's repentance. Repentance is leaving behind the things we love more than God. So when we approach this table, it's not carelessly, it's not flippantly, it's humbly, it's soberly. We consider one another, and then we come eat and drink to the glory of God.